Chapter 6 of the Confessions of Al-Ghazali This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Davis Beale The Confessions of Al-Ghazali by Abu Hamid Muhammad Ibn Muhammad Al-Ghazali Translated by Claude Field Chapter 6. Divisions of the Philosophic Sciences These sciences, in relation to the aim we have set before us, may be divided into six sections. 1. Mathematics. 2. Logic. 3. Physics. 4. Metaphysics. 5. Politics. 6. Moral Philosophy. Mathematics comprises the knowledge of calculation, geometry, and cosmography, it has no connection to the religious sciences and proves nothing for or against religion. It rests on a foundation of proofs which, once known and understood, cannot be refuted. Mathematics tend, however, to produce two bad results. The first is this. Whoever studies this science admires the subtlety and clearness of its proofs. His confidence in philosophy increases and he thinks that all its departments are capable of the same clearness and solidity of proof as mathematics. But when he hears people speak of the unbelief and impiety of mathematicians, of their professed disregard for the divine law, which is notorious, it is true that, out of regard for authority, he echoes these accusations, but he says to himself at the same time that, if there was truth in religion, it would not have escaped those who have displayed so much keenness of intellect in the study of mathematics. Next, when he becomes aware of the unbelief and rejection of religion on the part of these learned men, he concludes that to reject religion is reasonable. How many of such men gone astray I have met whose sole argument was that just mentioned? And supposing one puts to them the following objection— it does not follow that a man who excels in one branch of knowledge excels in all others, nor that he should be equally versed in jurisprudence, theology, and medicine. It is possible to be entirely ignorant of metaphysics and yet be an excellent grammarian. There are past masters in every science who are entirely ignorant of other branches of knowledge, the arguments of the ancient philosophers are rigidly demonstrative in mathematics and only conjectural in religious questions. In order to ascertain this, one must proceed to a thorough examination of the matter. Supposing, I say, one makes the above objection to these apes of unbelief, they find it distasteful. Falling a prey to their passions to a besotted vanity, and to the wish to pass for learned men, they persist in maintaining the preeminence of mathematicians in all branches of knowledge. This is a serious evil, and for this reason those who study mathematics should be checked from going too far in their researches. For though far removed as it may be from the things of religion, this study, serving as it does as an introduction to the philosophic systems, casts over religion its malign influence. It is rarely that a man devotes himself to it without robbing himself of his faith and casting off the restraints of religion. 
The second evil comes from the sincere but ignorant Muslim who thinks the best way to defend religion is by rejecting all the exact sciences. Accusing their professors of being astray, he rejects their theories of the eclipses of the sun and moon and condemns them in the name of religion. These accusations are carried far and wide. They reach the ears of the philosopher, who knows that these theories rest on infallible proofs. Far from losing confidence in them, he believes, on the contrary, that Islam has ignorance and the denial of scientific proofs for its basis, and his devotion to philosophy increases with his hatred to religion. It is therefore a great injury to religion to suppose that the defense of Islam involves the condemnation of the exact sciences. The religious law contains nothing which approves them or condemns them, and in their turn they make no attack on religion. The words of the prophet, The sun and the moon are two signs of the power of God. They are not eclipsed for the birth or death of anyone. When you see these signs, take refuge in prayer and invoke the name of God. These words, I say, do not in any way condemn the astronomical calculations which define the orbits of these two bodies, their conjunction and opposition according to particular laws. But as for the so-called tradition, when God reveals himself in anything, he abases himself thereto, it is unauthentic and not found in any trustworthy collection of the traditions. Such is the bearing and the possible danger of mathematics. 2. Logic. This science, in the same manner, contains nothing for or against religion. Its object is the study of different kinds of proofs and syllogisms, the conditions which should hold between the premises of a proposition, the way to combine them, the rules of a good definition, and the art of formulating it. For knowledge consists of conceptions which spring from a definition or of convictions which arise from proofs. There is therefore nothing censurable in this science, and it is laid under contribution by theologians as well as by philosophers. The only difference is that the latter use a particular set of technical formulae and that they push their divisions and subdivisions further. It may be asked, what, then, has this to do with the grave questions of religion, and on what ground opposition should be offered to the methods of logic? The objector, it will be said, can only inspire the logician with an unfavorable opinion of the intelligence and faith of his adversary, since the latter's faith seems to be based upon such objections. But, it must be admitted, logic is liable to abuse. Logicians demand in reasoning certain conditions which lead to absolute certainty, but when they touch on religious questions, they can no longer postulate these conditions, and ought therefore to relax their habitual rigor. It happens accordingly that a student who is enamored of the individual methods of logic, hearing his teachers accused of irreligion, believes that this irreligion reposes on proofs as strong as those of logic, and immediately without attempting the study of metaphysics, shares their mistake. This is a serious disadvantage arising from the study of logic. 3. Physics. The object of this science is the study of bodies which compose the universe, 
the sky and the stars and, here below, simple elements such as air, earth, water, fire, and compound bodies, animals, plants, and minerals, the reasons of their changes, developments, and intermixture. By the nature of its researches, it is closely connected with the study of medicine, the object of which is the human body, its principal and secondary organs, and the law which governs their changes. Religion, having no fault to find with medical science, cannot justly do so with physical, except on some special matters which we have mentioned in the work entitled The Destruction of the Philosophers. Besides these primary questions, there are some subordinate ones, depending on them, on which physical science is open to objection. But all physical science rests, as we believe, on the following principle. Nature is entirely subject to God. Incapable of acting by itself, it is an instrument in the hand of the Creator. Sun, moon, stars, and elements are subject to God, and can produce nothing of themselves. In a word, nothing in nature can act spontaneously and apart from God. 4. Metaphysics. This is the fruitful breeding ground of the errors of philosophers. Here they can no longer satisfy the laws of rigorous argumentation, such as logic demands, and this is what explains the disputes which arise between them in the study of metaphysics. The system most closely akin to the system of the Mohammedan doctors is that of Aristotle, as expounded to us by Farabi and Avicenna. The sum total of their errors, the sum total of their errors can be reduced to twenty propositions. Three of them are irreligious, and the other seventeen heretical. It was in order to combat their system that we wrote the book Destruction of the Philosophers. The three propositions in which they are opposed to all the doctrines of Islam are the following. 1. Bodies do not rise again. Spirits alone will be rewarded or punished. Future punishments will be therefore spiritual and not physical. They are right in admitting spiritual punishments, for there will be such, but they are wrong in rejecting physical punishments and contradicting in this manner the assertions of the divine law. 2. God takes cognizance of universals, not of specials. This is manifestly irreligious. The Quran asserts truly, Not an atom's weight in heaven or earth can escape his knowledge. 10.62 3. They maintain that the universe exists from all eternity and will never end. None of these propositions have ever been admitted by Muslims. Besides this, they deny that God has attributes, and maintain that he knows by his essence only, and not by means of any attribute accessory to his essence. In this point, they approach the doctrine of the Mutazilites, doctrines which we are not obliged to condemn as irreligious. On the contrary, in our work entitled criteria of the differences which divide Islam from atheism, we have proved the wrongness of those who accuse of irreligion everything which is opposed to their way of looking at things. 5. Political Science The professors of this confine themselves to drawing up the rules which regulate temporal matters and the royal power. 
They have borrowed their theories on this point from the books which God has revealed to his prophets and from the sentences of ancient sages gathered by tradition. 6. Moral Philosophy The professors of this occupy themselves with defining the attributes and qualities of the soul, grouping them according to genus and species, and pointing out the way to moderate and control them. They have borrowed this system from the Sufis. These devout men, who are always engaged in invoking the name of God, in combating concupiscence and following the way of God by renouncing the pleasures of this world, have received, while in a state of ecstasy, revelations regarding the qualities of the soul, its defects, and its evil inclinations. These revelations they have published, and the philosophers making use of them have introduced them into their own systems in order to embellish and give currency to their falsehoods. In the times of the philosophers, as at every other period, there existed some of these fervent mystics. God does not deprive this world of them, for they are its sustainers, and they draw down to it the blessings of heaven according to the tradition. It is by them that you obtain rain. It is by them that you receive your subsistence. Such were the companions of the cave, who lived in ancient times, as related by the Quran, 18. Now this mixture of moral and philosophic doctrine, with the words of the prophet and those of the Sufis, gives rise to two dangers, one for the upholder of these doctrines, the other for their opponent. The danger for their opponent is serious. A narrow-minded man, finding in their writings moral philosophy mixed with unsupported theories, believes that he ought to entirely reject them and to condemn those who profess them. Having only heard them from their mouth, he does not hesitate in his ignorance to declare them false, because those who teach them are in error. It is as if someone was to reject the profession of faith made by Christians. There is only one God, and Jesus is his prophet— simply because it proceeds from Christians and without inquiring whether it is the profession of this creed or the denial of Muhammad's prophetic mission which makes Christians infidels. Now, if they are only infidels because of their rejection of our prophet, we are not entitled to reject those of their doctrines which do not wear the stamp of infidelity. In a word, truth does not cease to be true because it is found among them. Such, however, is the tendency of weak minds. They judge the truth according to its professors, instead of judging its professors by the standard of the truth. But a liberal spirit will take as its guide this maxim of the prince of believers, Ali, the son of Abu Talib. Do not seek for the truth by means of men. Find first the truth, and then you will recognize those who follow it. This is the procedure followed by a wise man. Once in the possession of the truth, he examines the basis of various doctrines which come before him, and when he has found them true, he accepts them without troubling himself whether the person who teaches them is sincere or a deceiver. Much rather, remembering how gold is buried in the bowels of the earth, he endeavors to disengage the truth from the mass of errors in which it is engulfed. The skilled coin-assayer plunges without hesitation his hand into the purse of the coiner of false money 
and, relying on expertise, separates good coins from bad. It is the ignorant rustic, and not the experienced assayer, who will ask why we should have anything to do with a false coiner. The unskilled swimmer must be kept away from the seashore, not the expert in diving. The child, not the charmer, must be forbidden to handle serpents. As a matter of fact, men have such a good opinion of themselves, of their mental superiority and intellectual depth, they believe themselves so skilled in discerning the true from the false, the path of safety from those of error, that they should be forbidden, as much as possible, the perusal of philosophic writings, for though they sometimes escape the danger just pointed out, they cannot avoid that which we are about to indicate. Some of the maxims found in my works, regarding the mysteries of religion, have met with objectors of an inferior rank in science, whose intellectual penetration is insufficient to fathom such depths. They assert that these maxims are borrowed from the ancient philosophers, whereas the truth is that they are the fruit of my own meditations, but as the proverb says, sandal follows the impress of sandal. Some of them are found in our books of religious law, but the greater part are derived from the writings of the Sufis. But, even if they were borrowed exclusively from the doctrines of the philosophers, is it right to reject an opinion when it is reasonable in itself, supported by solid proofs, and contradicting neither the Koran nor the traditions? If we adopt this method and reject every truth which has chanced to have been proclaimed by an impostor, how many truths we should have to reject? How many verses of the Quran and traditions of the prophets and Sufi discourses and maxims of sages we must close our ears to because the author of the Treatise of the Brothers of Purity has inserted them in his writings in order to further his cause and in order to lead minds gradually astray in the paths of error. The consequence of this procedure would be that impostors would snatch truths out of our hands in order to embellish their own works. The wise man, at least, should not make common cause with the bigot blinded by ignorance. Honey does not become impure because it may happen to have been placed in the glass which the surgeon uses for cupping purposes. The impurity of blood is due, not to its contact with this glass, but to a peculiarity inherent in its own nature. This peculiarity, not existing in honey, cannot be communicated to it by its being placed in the cupping glass. It is therefore wrong to regard it as impure. Such is, however, the whimsical way of looking at things found in nearly all men, Every word proceeding from an authority which they approve is accepted by them, even were it false. Every word proceeding from one whom they suspect is rejected, even were it true. In every case, they judge of the truth according to its professors, and not of men according to the truth which they profess, a ne plus autre, of error. Such is the peril in which philosophy involves its opponents." The second danger threatens those who accept the opinions of the philosophers. When, for instance, we read the treatises of the Brothers of Purity, and other works of the same kind, we find in them sentences spoken by the Prophet and quotations from the Sufis. We approve these works, 
We give them our confidence, and we finish by accepting the errors which they contain, because of the good opinion of them with which they have inspired us at the outset. Thus, by insensible degrees, we are led astray. In view of this danger, the reading of philosophic writings so full of vain and delusive utopias should be forbidden, just as the slippery banks of a river are forbidden to one who knows not how to swim. The perusal of these false teachings must be prevented just as one prevents children from touching serpents. A snake charmer himself will abstain from touching snakes in the presence of his young child because he knows that the child, believing himself as clever as his father, will not fail to imitate him. And in order to lend more weight to his prohibition, the charmer will not touch a serpent under the eyes of his son. Such should be the conduct of a learned man who is also wise. But the snake charmer, after having taken the serpent and separated the venom from the antidote, having put the latter on one side and destroyed the venom, ought not to withhold the antidote from those who need it. In the same way, the skilled coin assayer, after having put his hand in the bag of the false coiner, taken out the good coins and thrown away the bad ones, ought not to refuse the good to those who need and ask for it. Such should be the conduct of the learned man. If the patient feels a certain dislike of the antidote because he knows that it is taken from a snake whose body is the receptacle of poison, he should be disabused of his fallacy. If a beggar hesitates to take a piece of gold which he knows comes from the purse of a false coiner, he should be told that his hesitation is a pure mistake which should deprive him of the advantage which he seeks. It should be proved to him that the contact of the good coins with the bad does not injure the former and does not improve the latter. In the same way, the contact of truth with falsehood does not change truth into falsehood any more than it changes falsehood into truth. Thus much, then, we have to say regarding the inconveniences and dangers which spring from the study of philosophy. End of chapter 6